quote from uh, Shenzhen Young. In the Buddhist tradition, the word truth implies insight, clear experiential knowledge of the effortless impersonal process that underlies all our experiences. Through insight, one learns to consciously participate in that process. When you do so, to a certain extent, you transcend the human condition or go beyond your limited personal identity. But this alone does not constitute a complete spiritual path. Goodness is also needed. Goodness implies the ability to manifest a personal self engaged with one's fellow beings. Goodness finds its ultimate expression in a life of effortless service. To transcend the human condition, to improve the human condition, and to understand the complementary relationship between these two, this is our basic job. Liberating insight without service is spiritually narrow. On the other hand, attempting to help people without at least some tools of transcendence leaves one susceptible to burnout and distortions in behavior. And so the topic uh, tonight is uh, about this uh, relationship between teachings on, uh, on self and selflessness, continuing what uh, Nikki began. And I think you can hear in the, the quote that I read that um, there's a, our spiritual path needs to be balanced. And what I actually want to suggest is that uh, our, uh, the imagined conflict between self-development and this insight into selflessness, what Shinzen called transcending, uh, there's not actually a conflict. That's not actually a conflict. So that's that's the topic for for tonight. In in the Buddhist uh, in the suttas, the oral tradition of of, of the Buddha, um, we see the encouragement to cultivate lots of different qualities, lots of wholesome qualities, uh, mindfulness, non-harming, tranquility, energy, kindness. So it's cultivate many different qualities and then it's also uh, cling to nothing whatsoever as I or mine. And 
there's so much confusion that abounds between these two sides of practice, of self-cultivation and letting go of self. The way that it's often discussed is like the self sort of tenaciously clings and conspires against all of our efforts to let go, to know selflessness. And sometimes you may get the sense that uh, the spiritual path is like this kind of battle we do to let go of self. Especially if you've been hanging around these scenes for a while and you know some of these teachings on ananatta, which is the, the Pali word for not-self. Uh, um, when you hear that, you start to... Uh, something happens to the mind where we start to feel very much like... Uh, Self is this like problem that we need to hunt down, you know. And uh, the suggestion that I'll try to unpack tonight is that there's more like a continuum from maybe we could say self harshness here to self kindness and self love here and all the way to selflessness, the insight into selflessness. And that the insight into selflessness is actually supported by, enabled by an expression of a radical form of self-love. A radical form of saying yes to everything we call self. Now, uh, what works against this insight into selflessness is not self-love, but self-clinging. It's, it's actually the grasping that's a problem, not the love, not the kindness. Because in an important way, love and kindness is already a species of letting go. And as the path matures, there's this kind of convergence between self-kindness and selflessness or self-forgetting sometimes used. And there's a convergence because the self that is loved is so much easier to forget than the self that is hated. Does that make sense? The self that is hated 
is a burden and a preoccupation and it it pools the energy it requires us to stay on guard we're in a kind of battle and we're trying to protect ourselves but in the self-acceptance, the self-kindness, the self-love, we're not standing guard anymore. It's just this basic assumption of okayness. We're not evaluating ourselves as I'm good, I'm bad. It's just like, no, I'm okay. And when we really feel like we're okay deeply, we can begin to forget the self. Now, uh, this is maybe how self-love starts to support this insight into selflessness. But the insight into selflessness that I'll talk more about Um, tonight makes the suffering of the self even more poignant. And so the insight actually the gesture of self-forgetting breeds love for oneself. Now, it's often uh, kind of feels like a paradox and and sometimes teachers even talk about this self and not self or self and no self as a kind of a paradox or a mystery. Um, But I actually, I don't think we need to invoke paradox to understand it. Um, Self is not a thing and not self is not a thing. Self is an experience. Not self is an experience. And two experiences don't contradict each other. They're just two experiences. And so there's no, there's no real paradox. When it starts to feel like a paradox is when we start to get too philosophical. And I, I was a philosophy major. <laughs> So, uh, I know that that mode, but what happens is, is we start to, without really knowing it, we start to smuggle metaphysics in the back door. (laughs) And we start to come up with these grand theories of, oh, the self, and 
self is here and not self is there, or, you know, like whatever, however we put it together. But when we start to get metaphysical about it, and we start to think about self and not self as things rather than experiences, that's when it starts to sound paradoxical. The Buddha, you know, I think was only uh, was only asked a couple times, or maybe two times, very directly: "Is there a self? Is there no self?" And uh, as it's recorded, at least. And in one famous exchange, uh, this this wanderer Vachagota comes to the Buddha and says, uh, "You know." Buddha is, is there a self? And the Buddha is, is silent. And then he uh, was like waiting on the answer. Okay, is there no self? And the Buddha is silent. And then poor Vachagoda just wanders away. <laughs> And the Buddha's attendant, as the story goes, Ananda says, like, why didn't you answer Vachagoda? That was a fair question. What, uh, what's, what's the story? And the Buddha said, well, if I had said that there is a self, would that be in keeping with my teaching on impermanence? And Ananda said, no. And then the Buddha said, well, if I said there is no self, would that not risk uh, sounding like uh, nihilism or nothing exists? And Ananda said, uh, yeah, that's, that's a risk if you said that. And then the Buddha says, um, you know, Vachagoda is already confused enough. You know. <laughs> And that's it, you know, like, it's not like the footnote, there is no self, you know, it's like, that's it. And um, what this actually helps us do is let go of some of the philosophical musings about this, uh, because they're not, uh, they're, they're, it's not really onward leading. It's not onward leading. Um, this subject does, does tend to generate a, quite a bit of um, restlessness and agitation in the mind. Uh, you guys seem pretty settled, actually. But sometimes you start talking about this teaching and uh, like the level of energy sort of gets amped up and uh, like we're trying to like grab hold of the teaching in a way. And uh, it, it's, it is in a certain way a challenging teaching. Freud said that uh, humanity has faced a couple, not a couple, three sort of major humblings in our uh, history. And the first was uh, 
Copernicus. And uh, the earth apparently is not the center of the universe. And uh, we're going around the sun. And the second was, uh, was Darwin and the evolution of species. And the third humbling that Freud noted was uh, the revelation of the unconscious, the fact that we're not even a master in our own home, the home of our mind. And these teachings on anatta have that kind of flavor where uh, they feel kind of abrasive or challenging, like, wait, you're going to tell me I'm not who I think I am? You don't even know me. <laughs> right. So just, we have to, when we hear these teachings, we have to really uh, be sensitive to how we're here. We have to listen to how we listen. Because in an important sense, we're always listening to teachings on selflessness from the perspective of self. And so when we hear them, we're envisioning it through the prison. That was a little slip. I meant to say prism. I said prison. Prism of self. Now, as I said, none of this is to give the impression that we are here to do battle with self. This is Jack Engler, a psychologist and longtime Dharma practitioner and teacher. As a psychologist, part of my effort is to help people develop capacities that may be underdeveloped or may have been derailed or may have been compromised by subsequent trauma. Ego, in this sense, is a positive thing. That's the way I think of it in psychology. But a lot of people who come to me for therapy don't think of ego that way. They think of it in a spiritual context where it's a bad thing. But talking about ego in a spiritual context, to me, is even more problematic. It gets talked about almost like it's an alternate personality within me that's bad. It gets reified as some part of me that I have to do battle with, that I have to transcend. I think spiritual language reinforces a lot of dualistic thinking when we talk about ego that way. Now, instead of self versus other, it's self versus ego. And so the struggle just continues in another guise. So I I want to... um, affirm the value and the place of self-cultivation, of 
loving oneself. It's uh, it's the goodness that Shinzen was alluding to in that quote. And so, on this path, we we sit down, we close our eyes, and we make everything relevant. This is how we begin to heal, to cultivate the self. We close our eyes and we make everything relevant. We don't squander any suffering. We let life uh, soften our hearts. And in this process of making everything relevant, we start to gather up the kind of shards and fragments of self. That which has not been integrated Which is really just pain and the tangle of fear and clinging. But all of this arises. This is the logic of the Dharma. We sit down, we try to pay attention to our breath, we try to mind our own business, and yet there are the fragments of the self. That which feels undigested in our life. And the stillness and the silence is a way of beginning to digest our life, which means to make it more and more whole, to be more and more open, accepting, and loving in relation to all the fragments of the self. And over the, t- over the course of a, of a Dharma life, there's this kind of review of our past. The past, in a certain way, the past is all there is. Yeah. Right? The past is just manifesting moment by moment all the causes and conditions manifesting moment by moment. And we're making peace with that. We're making peace with the past as we sit in the present. And so much changes in this process and we start to rewrite our history, rewrite the story, our autobiography, except this story 
is uh, told from the perspective of Dharma. It's a story that's cast in the, the light of the most fundamental distinction between suffering and ease. And so our story, our family story, our history uh, becomes a story not of right and wrong, good and bad, should, should not, blame, but instead a story of suffering and ease. The self starts to feel more and more um, safe. Our inner life starts to feel more and more safe. And of course, we discover all of our quirks and foibles and weirdness and all of that. Um, And we actually find ourselves saying in a deep and sincere way to all of it, yes. That belongs. It's okay. And there's so much um, freedom in that kind of very soft relationship with oneself. We start to feel there's a kind of just wholeness. It's like our life doesn't feel scattered. It's just like gathered. And... That is, um, yeah, that's very precious. And if that's all Dharma practice could offer, that would be enough. That would be enough for me to devote my life to it at least. But the Buddha nudges us further and even the well-adjusted self carries a burden of dukkha, burden of dissatisfaction, And so there's another kind of aspect to our practice, which in a certain way is an even deeper affirmation of the self. When we love ourselves, we say yes in a certain way. Yes to these feelings, yes to these memories, yes to these thoughts, yes to the truth of my history. 
and that is self-love. And we keep saying yes more and more deeply. Until, it's just yes. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi. Ordinarily, our benighted attempts to achieve security are oriented around the standpoint of self. We assume that we possess a solid core of individual being, and thus our varied plans and projects take shape as so many maneuvers to ward off threats to the self and promote its dominance in the overall scheme of things. The Buddha turns this whole point of view on its head by pointing out that anxiety is the dark twin of ego. He declares that all attempts to secure the interests of ego necessarily arise out of clinging, and that the very act of clinging paves the way for our downfall when the object to which we hold perishes as it must by its very nature. The Buddha maintains that the way to true security lies precisely in the abolition of clinging. The word Dhamma itself means that which upholds and supports. The Buddha's teaching is called the Dhamma because it upholds those who live by it. So, egoic life is just a disaster. (laughs) I trust not just for me, right? But it's just, it's just kind of messy. And, uh, you know, what we are trying to do is feel good and secure and But uh, in the end, the gesture of ego, at best, we come off looking a little, just a little silly. (laughs) The image that I have like around ego and self-clinging is like uh, when I was in like fifth grade and doing show and tell. You know, and you'd bring in, like, whatever you brought in. I would bring in, like, baseball cards or something and, like, just present this to the class and, you know, like, look. And it's that same flavor of, like, look. Look at me. Look at this. Know me as this. But uh, the world is not 
does not bend to the will of my ego, striving, clinging. And I have a whole catalog of uh, ego stories, but um, the one that came to mind as I was reflecting on this was um, I was teaching a uh, teaching a Dharma class and um, and in this class uh, they read they read a bio you know and so they read my bio before I started teaching and the group is assembled and the the uh, host is reading my bio and uh, as I was hearing it you know it was like wow my bio that sounds good that uh, Sounds like I've got my shit together. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, this degree and this training, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, wow, look at him. <laughs> <clears throat> but, <laughs> oh man, on this particular night, I had managed to show up to teach a mindfulness class with my zipper down. <laughs> Which is like the cardinal mindfulness sin, right? It's like, it's just the worst, right? You, you can't. And so, um, and a student very kindly told me, you know, Matthew, your zipper's down. You're about to teach mindfulness. You know. But the juxtaposition of this like bio where I... And then the, the pants and, you know, you can only look good on paper, you know, like that's, right? It's like we hold it together and we sort of present well enough, you know, but we can only look good on paper, right? Really? Now... Um, when we envision this kind of um, insight around selflessness, we often, we're, we, we, as I was saying, we think of it through that we see it through the prism of self, and so in a certain way, we're imagining this as a kind of self-improvement project where the self gets even better, right? <laughs> but uh, Ajahn Sumedho said, you know, famously said, like, no, it's not the personality that gets enlightened. It's not the, this is not a kind of addition to who we think we are. So this is Rumi tending to shops. Uh, Don't run around this world looking for a hole to hide in. There are wild beasts in every cave. If you live with mice, the cat claws will find you. The only real rest comes when you're alone with God. Live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere and eyes that judge distances, how high and how low. 
You own two shops and you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, always getting smaller. Checkmate this way, <coughs> checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish, fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. And so, as we sit and we make everything relevant, we start to allow more and more <coughs> of the self to arise. We give permission for it to arise. We also start to notice that what we see, what we experience, is flavored with the sense of I amness. That the awareness tastes like me. The awareness tastes like me. kind of flavor. And we're learning to actually be mindful of how that flavor arises, how it is composed. I think, importantly, this is, uh, this is not, um, there's, there's this sense, a kind of abiding sense, without always knowing it, that like contained within me is like, a miniature me. You know? We just have this vague sense that there is this center point that is receiving all of experience. And what we're turning towards is is knowing that we see we take that to be the ground of our being <coughs> that sense of the center point the matthew within matthew and that that sense of ground is very closely connected with internal conversation. The internal conversation is so familiar, it feels so cozy, you know, 
that we've taken it as the ground of our being. But it is just more experience. I said there's no such thing as the breath, just a flow of sensation. There's no such thing as your life, just a flow of experience. The sense of I amness, the sense of awareness being flavored by me, is because we're not seeing, we're not actually hearing and seeing experience clearly. And so there's a kind of buildup of the momentum of mindfulness, of concentration, so that we can start to actually sense, like, what is the ground I am taking to be self in this moment? And we start to know that ground in the same way you might know an inhale. And that which is known, we know as not self. That which can be known is not self. I think um, I'm actually, there's a, a, more to, uh, to, I'm not done, but I'm going to stop <laughs> because I'm here next week and we'll, we'll continue and then the next, we'll move into another topic, which is the relation between uh, this teaching on, on not-self and the teaching on anicca, on impermanence. But I want to um, have some time for, for some discussion, and so I'll uh, pause here and we'll, we'll pick up next week. But um, maybe if Sean could magically appear, that would be good. These questions could be, uh, I found out today at dinner that uh, this group that's been going on for 29 years, uh, you always ask questions at the end, and uh, I haven't been doing that. So uh, I've been doing it right after meditation, but I'm going to... Not always. Not always, okay. Anyway, so the questions can be about... um, about the instructions or anything coming up in your practice, or it can be about all the weird things I just said. (laughs) 
thank you. Um, so you said that which is known mm. is not self. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'd like you to speak a little bit more about that. So yeah. what I took from that is that, okay, that which is known is not self. So it's that which is aware. So that which is aware in me, what, when I'm aware, it's like the watcher. I'm observing the self, me, this being yeah. in the world and all of the thoughts and sensations and all. The, is it that? Is that not so? The awareness is the not self, correct? Mm. Or am I? What, yeah. what, what am I missing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you're you're right. We are we are um, we are becoming more and more aware of the different components of, that we take to be self. Different, you know, thoughts, feelings, sensations. And in that not mindful knowing, we, because we are seeing it as, as the, all of these experiences arise from nothing, return to nothing, that they can't be self. They can't be the ground of my being. Now, the awareness, a lot of times what we think is uh, maybe like pure awareness still has kind of strands of clinging bound up in it. That's what I'm alluding to when I said it, like awareness tastes like me. And that flavor, we have to actually get more and more subtle and discerning and like sensing that flavor. Because when we know more and more of experience as when we can see more and more of experience, uh, we know it as arising and passing away. And the awareness starts to be tasteless. But then is, the, is that, sometimes people will turn that into a kind of, that's what we're after, that's the God, pure awareness or something like that. Um, I, I asked, um, asked a teacher you know, many years ago, uh, as this Shenzhen Young, you know, um, who'd been at this time practicing for maybe 30 or 35 years, and I said, what, what is awareness? You know, and he, we'd just been on a two-week retreat, and he's talking about it nonstop, right? So what is awareness? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> but how we use it is the difference between life being uh, horrific or comfortable. And I'm kind of agnostic about what, what it is, but, uh, and I don't want to turn it into the ultimate self or something, but uh, we can know 
forms of awareness that are free of suffering and no longer taste like self. And I'll, I'll, there's more, more to say. I'll share more next time. I think um, this has been fabulous. I've had quite the week where I kind of um, was, I don't know where it came from, but somebody was talking about finding your authentic self, and then somebody says, oh, for Lent, find your authentic self. And then somebody on the other side of the table is going, oh, you know, non-self, you know. And uh, I said, oh, were you there Monday night listening to Nikki? And she goes, no, it's just a, basic Buddhist concept. So in that, so now I get to hear non-self is the self. And what you're saying all makes perfect sense to me. Um, just because I've been going back through my various egos, now that I've discovered all these things that I've shed it along the way, and, yeah. and ones that have gotten me really stuck and anchored, I found a really hard one, you know, from about six or eight years old. Yeah. Um, so it's fascinating. Yeah. And I hope to be free. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great. It is like a, a graveyard. The many selves, you know, and uh, we find some are easy to to let go of, like you know, we or when we think back to when we were real young, and we thought we were whatever. I thought I was going to be an astronaut or something. Like I can let go of that now since I get sick in cars, you know, <laughs> right? So it's like, okay. But then the, the path is this kind of like progressive letting go of more and more identities. And the most problematic places of, of most problematic kind of sites of clinging is that the identities that we don't see. And so it begins with a kind of, it begins with a, uh, you know, maybe it begins with a kind of more casual interrogation of, of the ideas that I hold that sort of make me valuable. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, you know, the first question is like, okay, I'm a, how do I let go of being like a comp, the notion of being a competent meditation teacher? I have to let that go. <laughs> I, I hopefully don't become incompetent, but I have to let that go actually to be competent. Yeah. So first the interrogation is like, okay, What's, what's bound up in the notion of needing to be competent? But then the question keeps getting deeper. Oh, am I a competent teacher? Am I a teacher at all? Am I a, a man? 
my human, what am I? And the questions keep getting kind of more and more provocative and we keep progressively um, um, seeing that self-definition always leaves something out. It's never quite right. I was just noticing the burden of constantly working your story in your head in order to hold an ego, you yeah. know, just how burdensome that is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, one of the kind of long-term trajectories over practice is, uh, is um, there's just a much more lightness and spaciousness around, uh, around what's, what's the story we tell of our life, you know, what's happening in this moment or what I want, what I don't want, that just everything about that, the kind of narrative of self and longing and past and future, all of that just starts, as we drain some of the egoic charge, it just starts to be kind of like these loose clothes that we wear, but are not constricting. And we still tell stories, but we always know they're at least a little wrong. You know, like even while we're telling them. Yeah. All right, let's just sit for a moment. We love the self, we forget the self.
as that process deepens, kind of energy of the heart is freed up. when we no longer are embroiled in a tangle of self-hatred, we're no longer standing guard at the gates of self. There is more and more energy to love and serve. The true fruit of practice. <coughs> so may our efforts, may our efforts be a cause for less suffering, more joy, more ease, Thank you. Nice to spend the evening with you. So have a good uh, have a good week. And I'll see you next next Monday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.